Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile. This meeting is being recorded. Hello and welcome to another episode of My Property World. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Adam Lawrence, the author of The Sunday Supplement, which can be found in the partners-property.com blog. Uh, Adam, um, great to have you on the show. Do, do you want to give us a 30-second um, a, a uh, who is Adam Lawrence and why should someone be listening to him? <laughs> Not sure there's a reason for that, Will, but I'll try. Um, so thanks for having me um, on the pod again. Um, so I've been involved in a little over 500 um, mostly residential property market transactions over the last uh, 10 or 11 years, with the majority of those being sort of 2016 onwards, where most would probably admit the landscape has got a fair bit harder. Um held on to most of them, have primarily been a buyer and holder, buyer, improver and holder. Uh, so I've been heavy on the investment and asset management front. Um, and I've also been obsessed with macroeconomics for as long as I can remember, um, trying to sharpen my skills by writing a weekly piece that we're here to discuss. Oh, well, well, fantastic. So uh, for, for people um, listening at some point in the future, we're, <clears throat> we're on the 16th of October. Um, and we're four chan chancellors in in four months. Um, there's a little a little doubt in most people's minds. There's likely to be a change of uh, the premiership at some some point uh, in the near future as well. Uh, Liz Truss is currently the incumbent. Um, whether that that is the case, uh, even a week into the future, where you know no one could say with great great certainty. So. Uh, political turmoil, but um, what does this all mean to uh, property investors? I, I don't think there's anyone better placed uh, uh, to, to talk about this. So uh, let, let's let's go straight into the supplement. And uh, can we kick off with the quote that you've got at the top of the article? You're very happy to. Well, thanks. So this week's quote: My mission in life is not merely to survive, but to thrive, and to do so with some passion some compassion, some humour and some style. And that was by Maya Angelou, who was an American memoirist. So as Will said, another week, another chancellor, uh, or more accurately, another month, another chancellor, I guess. Um, but the order on, of play on Friday really was quite simple. After various votes of confidence, after multiple promises that various measures would not be rowed back on, they were immediately rowed back on. Uh, Quarting was thrown under the bus, which calmed markets for a princely few hours until the re 
remaining incumbent aforementioned PM once again managed the press in a bloodbath of a press conference. That, of course, sent markets haywire again, and things really don't look good. The entry from stage left, surprising many, of Jeremy Hunt, has as yet gone relatively unexplained. The PR machine that follows Hunt around has told the story of a meeting of greatness with the Governor of, Bank of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey, who has, correctly, drawn his own fire over recent weeks and months. Bailey has missed several steps in the weeks preceding, in his own version of managing the situation, where gilts have been selling off left, right and centre, driven primarily by pension fund margin calls against leveraged government bond positions, as explained over the past fortnight or so, but also by impending potential downgrades in the UK credit rating and the international markets wondering how these future tax cuts would possibly be paid for and requesting a higher premium for taking on the debt. So, Hunt is the answer to all prayers, is he? He made few friends as health secretary, but during austerity, who would, you could argue? The man has at least been a successful entrepreneur with two significant business exits. Quarting has been under fire for his experience, although he was an analyst in financial services. He did also do a PhD in economic history, which you would have hoped would have been helpful, although the merits of political thought of the re-coinage crisis of 1695 to 1697, which was the title of his thesis, could likely be questioned. <clears throat> this, is all very, this is all very interesting and debatable. And you know, Will, I'm not one to malign education in any way, shape or form. Um, <clears throat> and we'll, we'll find out. It's actually easier to remain manager of Watford at the moment than be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. And they get through the managers <laughs> like hotcakes. Um, so, some are writing Hunt off as the night watchman before trust is inevitably gone. However, the world does seem to be able to handle neutered leaders. Just look at the USA. So I would not be so sure. It would be quite easy to paint poor old Liz as the victim, which might be the way forward, given at this time, almost no one can see a path to the Conservatives winning a majority at the next election. But will old Jezza just have stepped up to the plate like that? Or could we imagine a conversation between the PM and the very most senior axe wielders in the party, the true puppet masters, which went along the lines of something like, Liz, either you both go or you throw him under the bus and stick Jeremy in. We know you've never liked each other. It's the only chance of repairing this damage. You do what we say from now on. Otherwise, we choose between the devil and the deep blue sea and rebel against everything you propose and force an election. Is that a bit conspiratorial? Perhaps, but still I feel it as somewhat likely. For those who are not close to politics, and who wants to be at the moment, they are not happy bedfellows. Hunt was a Remainer. He sided with Sunak when he was knocked out of the most recent leadership contest when Trust defeated Sunak. If Hunt goes at any point, Trust goes with him. There is no option. He's even being called the de facto prime minister in some quarters. I'd see it more as him having autonomy in number 11 and using the history to form a mutual respect with trust, but to allow the international markets to disassociate the gaff-laden PM with the running of the UK economy. This worked well for Blair and Brown, for example. 
So, so it's a really fascinating dynamic. So you've got um, a, a former direct leadership rival uh, who uh, then went on to, to back your number one rival uh, and then now inside your, your camp in the most important position uh, possible. Um, not, not, not the the, the smoothest uh, sort of pick if you if you had to make one. There's no, there's no way that she's done that not under duress, in my opinion, no way. But then this is the when the chips are down moment, right? The chips. It's early on, as the, as we said a couple of weeks ago, she hit the ground. Unfortunately, not running, just hit the ground um, and left the chalk outline, and this is recovery territory. So. I don't see this being anything other than uh, significantly controlled by other people in the party. So there's a uh, there's a really stark illustration of, of uh, how the checks and balances within the uh, Westminster system work. Um, you're uh, unlike a uh, I suppose an autocratic regime where, where one person decides and uh, what what she says goes. Uh, you've actually got to have the uh, the support of your parliamentary majority uh, party colleagues or or whatever the coalition that you've formed um, to, to back you, and um, she appears not to have have had that um, uh, at any point through this process, which um, you know, thankfully, I, I would say. <laughs> I'd agree. I'd agree with that, Will, but. Uh, back to Hunt, you know, he's the richest man in the cabinet and stands fairly clear on that front, apart from Rishi, of course, um, in the Conservative Party. The betting markets see him as the favourite to be the next PM, and by him I mean Rishi. But I think that looks unlikely. The party certain defeat at the next election, but any further changeovers would have to trigger a general election. And there's no way the Conservative Party would be favourite. Instead, they may as well press on with some difficult decisions and try and do the right thing and minimise the damage. Amidst the U-turns, and there are so many, it is worse than anything Boris did on that front, at least in terms of the frequency. Section 21 is back on the table to be abolished. It's happening, apparently. I honestly see it mostly as a storm in a teacup, but as always... Don't put your head in your hands and take control of your asset management now. Meanwhile, Starmer is promising no more buy to let landlords getting in first, whatever that's supposed to mean. As someone myself who has rarely, and even then if unknowingly, competed against homeowners and has brought more than 300 properties back to life through complete refurbishment, that sticks in the craw a little, Will. Still, Generation rent friendly chat is likely. The too big to fail private rented sector looks fairly safe. And I think we can take part in Labour voting down rent controls in Wales this week, which would, of course, have done further damage to the already broken system. So maybe zooming out, I'd prefer a bit of economic stark reality that we're truly facing at the moment. <clears throat> Austerity was a terrible philosophy policy and decision in the early 2010s. The obsession with the monetarist school of economics, which is never stronger than in inflationary times, ironically, as an economic philosophy, 
meant that it was deployed after a great recession, which was never the right thing to do, particularly when the borrowing costs hit the floor. Conservatives realised this years too late, <clears throat> although they could have made some smart decisions back in early 2021, but missed the boat. They could have borrowed so much for so many good infrastructure projects, but were too slow to the party. As we are now, austerity looks inevitable. Instead, the economically foolish wanted to go for growth. There's still, happily, a very clear and sensible head on the world market forces for borrowing. If you decide you're swinging the bat and are just going to borrow without balancing the books or even looking at them, you'd be forgiven for thinking. Things will wobble in a massive way. Investors will demand much higher returns for lending to the government because the risk goes through the roof. Modern monetary theory, brackets MMT, the same initials as magic money tree, which is no coincidence, happily still has no serious basis in a conversation. Government and the size of government ballooned during COVID and cutbacks have been somewhat organic, but not as large as is needed. The budget is the only way to keep the show on the road. If we simply borrow more, then it costs us more to borrow less debt, and the debt will be increasing for years before we're back on an even keel. So, so could you just say that again? Because I, I think that this is this is like a, a, a vital component of the, uh, what you're saying. Well, the, the best way to look at this is the way that, for, for no good reason, and, and a question that very few people ever ask or or go anywhere near when they talk on television about this sort of thing. There seems to be this obsession with what percentage of the GDP our current borrowing represents, right? So you have sort of Japan at the top end in the G7 at 250% of their GDP. And you would have Germany at the bottom end, um, who I think are about 65 to 70% these days. And then everybody else lives somewhere in the middle. And I don't, I don't know why that's the chosen metric. It seems to be one of those things that no one questions it enough. Whereas what's much more relevant is what percentage of your GDP you're, you're spending on servicing that debt. Because once you've gone over a certain amount, um, that fiscal drag on your performance just lasts longer and longer and longer. So what I'm really saying, Will, is I'd much rather the UK was at 150% of its GDP at a cost of debt that looks similar to Japan's because we'd still be paying less money out every month and year than we would be if we were at 100%, but the rates are so much higher. So, you know... And, and I, I think the equivalent, um, if you think about your own portfolio, is that um, you could have 120% loan to value if it's at a low enough rate, if you're able to service it easily yeah. from uh, your rental profits. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, there's certainly times in the past where I've artificially created that situation when I'm expanding aggressively and I felt the environment is particularly stable or bubbling along nicely and quietly in the background, a little bit above inflation, which is a housing market that really everyone should enjoy because the debt's nominal and stable and the growth is real and the growth in incomes is real as well. So, an interesting analogy to LTV because obviously as a lender, you, well, 2008 taught most lenders the lesson they didn't want to be lending at 100 or 125% to 
to value. Um, whereas with GDP, it is slightly different because so much more of it is about servicing the debt. Does there need to be this stigma? And there does appear to be this stigma. And, it, and it's a bit of a carryover from 2008's mindset of having over 100% of GDP as debt. But it's really how can that debt be serviced that is, that is the valid point. Because, you know, the stability of the income of the whole uh, economy of a nation is a lot more significant than the stability of the income in a, a rental property or a rental portfolio for obvious reasons. Um, so that's sort of that's sort of where so, we so, are. So I think I think just keeping that that uh, like if you just repeat that last sentence um, uh, regarding cutting the budget. So cutting the budget is the only way to keep the show on the road. If we simply borrow more, and it costs us more to borrow less debt. And the debt will be increasing for years until we're back on an even keel. So, indeed, the penny has finally dropped. That inflation is so far out of control that the Bank of England is also quietly buying index-linked index gilts to take the opportunity to buy them back, while pension funds are still having to sell them off. Now, that's been costing the economy around about $25 billion more than it did last year uh, over a similar period of time. So uh, quite clever, really, that you'd rather those returns go to the bank and take advantage of that situation than them go to um, the pension funds or, or private investors. So while we're on the subject of the bank again, on to uh, Mr. Bailey. First of all, Will, I thought it would be sensible for us to have a little reminisce over a titan of central banking that presided mightily over the Brexit referendum and then the beginning of the pandemic after a contract extension, Mark Joseph Carney, OC. His calm tones after a result that the market considered nearly impossible. You know, Brexit was trading at 12 to 1 before the votes were counted. On the 23rd of June 2016, he steadied the ship and the economy rarely missed a beat on the back of it. It was, of course, years before Brexit then actually happened. During COVID, flawless in his execution of lower and lower rates, avoided negative rates, often disliked, particularly by the right, mostly because he was a fairly obvious liberal. He simply won the intellectual battle, and did the right thing in central banking. He talked, he didn't necessarily take action, and either way, he seemed to get the desired result. Great man. Anyway, rose-tinted specs away. Bailey never looked like he measured up. It's it's always um, it's always great to to hear you talk about someone you're a fan of, uh, Adam. <laughs> there's there's not as many of them in positions as power as I'd like, Will, but yes, indeed, and not currently, currently, currently. Yes, exactly right, exactly right. So, the chief economist at the time, Andy Haldane, seemed a lone voice. He was a little off with the household dissaving theories which was that people would sort of swallow inflation and stop saving so much when the pandemic finally ended. Um, the most recent figures available show that in Q2 2022, which was very limp economically, households were still saving at a higher percentage of their income at any time since Q1 2016, ignoring the COVID quarters. But he was bang on with the inflation and interest rate chat advocating rises from the middle of 2021 <clears throat> in order to control the looming spectre that only some seem to see coming. 
Instead, Bailey has had to issue yet another ill-timed, embarrassing statement after mismanaging the pension fund's liquidity crisis this week with poor and combative communication. He simply came out on Friday to say that interest rate rises will be higher than expected for longer and we're still trying to blame the mini-budget, even though it looks like most of that will be rowed back on or accompanied by cuts. So that's back to where Hunt's job is basically impossible. For an example, cuts to the NHS when 12% of the population are waiting for treatment on some sort of waiting list will be tantamount to political suicide. Having said that, the pin is already out on the grenades on the suicide vests. So to an extent, what has he got to lose? The bank's bullishness on rates staying at or under 6%, following on from my report of the bank's breakfast briefing some months ago, some weeks ago, sorry, looks less tenable than when they answered my question on it. All this, of course, has implications and ramifications, and that's where we start to depart from the macro, interesting though it is at the moment, and move to the micro. As usual, that killer question will, so what? What does this mean for all of us? I'd like a little credit to go to uh, Christine Genoway, because uh, that's her favourite question uh, uh, when she, she hears either of us talking. It's um, so, so what, 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 what does that mean for me? <laughs> it's almost as if either of us have a tendency to be somewhat loquacious, Will. Yes, indeed, indeed. Um, so, well, I, I really liked a quote from Mike Kovac, who was on Rod Turner's podcast, The Rodcast, a couple of weeks back. In a recession, your job is to hold on to your assets. Very sensible, because not everyone will be able to do that. There's a few sage pieces of advice here that are worth repeating. Right. Firstly, understand the problem. Get a hold on the numbers. Is there a cash flow problem? When will there be a cash flow problem? How long might it last for? Is it a permanent problem? Then once that's quantified, what can you do? Raise rents? If the alternative is you going broke, who will you choose? repurpose property to HMO or services to accommodation, sweat the asset harder. That's an option. If you can't make that work, are you going to sell? You might have noticed the 26% uplift in the past two and a half years simply on capital values. No one's going to be in a negative equity position unless the circumstances really are incredible. The market hasn't fallen off a cliff as yet. I randomly chose a, one of the great towns in the UK, Solihull, Will. Um, it's still showing 65.5% sold subject to contract on right move at the moment from lofty heights. Yeah, that, that's a, it's a lovely place apart from the people I hear. <laughs> I heard the sage is a good chap, but the rest of them I'm not so sure about. Um, but those, <laughs> that, that hit sort of lofty heights around 80% earlier in this year or late last year. Um, that's a definite cooling. There's no doubt about that. However, stock levels are lower, although they have been trending down for years. And the organic cooling that comes with the winter break, mid-November onwards loosely, will be on us within a few weeks. We're nowhere near buyer's market territory just yet. If something needs to go because there are no other options, then take your head out of the sand, put the best foot forward and get on with it. Further than this, when looking at purchasing, 
if some of the good old faithful tactics over the past few years look unlikely or unworkable, for example, the momentum model or buy, refurb, refinance, rent, then creative solutions are needed. More equity in deals, perhaps deals need to be done at lower prices, always hard because it lowers transaction volumes. Leave cash behind and work to lower loan to values, always possible for those in a strong cash position. Vendor finance, so vendors can hit their targets but have to wait for their money, maybe. All of these are on the table and all parts of the toolkit, which we are actively looking at using in the moment in our investment group. So, do we then look at options where you add value first before completion? Do we look at assisted sales or with asset prices more likely than not to go down over the next couple of years? Rent to rent becomes much more attractive because, of course, one of the fundamental problems with rent to rent is that you don't own the asset. Um, that can be less of a problem when capital values are on the way downwards. Um, of course, you are then subject to how the underlying asset owners finance is structured, of course, because if they're on a variable rate, for example, and they don't realize the freight train that's coming, then it's going to cause a potential issue. And also, I think, Will, it's a good time to remind everyone about their human capital, right? In this job market, you might be able to go and dictate terms on a two or three day a week commitment, at a relatively outrageous day rate compared to some years ago. Perhaps that's worth considering. So there's also on the table at the moment, lower rates with higher arrangement fees. And when I say lower, I mean lower compared to the rest of the market at the moment, not lower than six months ago, to be clear. But that puts some of those capital gains to use to remain sensibly leveraged, thanks to that big bump we've had in the pricing. And we're back to that goal of holding on to the assets rather than expecting super normal profits. For those who don't stay in the game or sell because of Section 21 removals or any of the other straws that will try to break the camel's back over the next few months and years, remember once you're out, getting back in is hard. For those who stay in, a woeful supply of good quality properties and a growing rental market in terms of demand will only lead one way. So I thought, Will, I'm going to try and expand on some deal finding morsels over the next weeks and months as this situation emerges. So stay tuned for more rants, political soap operas, formulae, data, and hopefully pragmatic conclusions. Stick with those reasons to be cheerful every morning and let this be one of them on a Sunday. So you, you can get in touch with uh, Adam via LinkedIn, Adam G. Lawrence on LinkedIn. Um, I'd also put a little plug in for uh, the Rodcast, which is Rod Turner's podcast. It's, uh, it's per my personal favourite property investment or certainly within the UK uh, podcast. Um, and that episode with Mike Kovacs was... Outstanding. I've uh, I've listened to it once, and uh, it's on my playlist to listen to a second, and I suspect a third time over the the next week or so. Uh, really good quality stuff, filled with with great information, 
uh, as is the majority of his his podcasts. So the broadcast, I think it, it goes by. Right. Sure. Um, so I'm Will Mallard. Uh, enough enough pitching other podcasts. Uh, this is my Property World podcast. Uh, great to have you on the show, Adam Lawrence. Thanks for having me again, Will. Welcome to My Property World, a light and informative look at all things property. We have designed this series for people involved in property and property finance in the UK market. However, we do take examples from all around the property world. Our aim is for us to make money from property together. Whether that be buying, selling, financing, trading or getting involved in a deal in another way. We do this by informing, entertaining and enjoying ourselves talking property, which gives you a chance to get to know us, what we're up to and to check us out until you're ready to make money together. In the meantime, My Property World is free and fun, so plug in your headphones and enjoy. We would love for you to like, share and comment, so please do on social media. And if you have questions, ideas for topics or deals you would like to explore, we're always looking for guests, so get in touch via the My Property World profile.